Thank you, Sarah Beth. Um, good morning. It's good to be together this morning. Uh, for those of you who don't know, or who, who I may not know, my name is Andrew. I'm the associate pastor here uh, at the Shawnee campus. And uh, yeah, it was really good to hear. Um, I didn't know this was our six-month anniversary. So this is really fun. Uh, Tim and I counted a real privilege to uh, serve at this church, and I counted a privilege to get to share this pulpit with him. Uh, I don't take it lightly. I don't take lightly also the fact that I have a voice this morning. This past week, um, I've been a little bit sick, and so if I do that a lot this morning, I'm sorry, but actually I had somebody tell me this last week, your voice actually sounds a little better when you're sick. Like, that might be good for preaching, which I'm not really sure how to take that. Um, but anyway, I'm glad to have it this morning. So uh, anyway, anyway, before I say anything else, let's pause uh, now and go to God and ask him for help uh, this morning as we open his word. Father, thank you uh, for being here, uh, present with us. And even as we sing as your people together, um, that beautiful song, How Great Thou Art, God, we are mindful that you are our God and our Savior and that it's a, it's a wonder that we can come before you in your presence through your Son. And so I, I pray that we would come before you with worship this morning and that your Spirit would be active and working to convict us, to clarify. Um, Lord, where I speak my own words, may they quickly, quickly fall away. But where I speak your word after you, God, I pray there would be power and conviction um, and even heart change. So God, we, we know you're the only one who can do that, and I pray that that would happen this morning. Thank you for this time together. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we just began a series entitled Deliver Us, which is a journey through uh, the book of Exodus, and really um, we're tracing along the life of Moses. And it, you know, we, we just finished a series in, in a letter, which was really fun, uh, or I don't know if fun is the right word for 1 Corinthians, but we just finished a letter, and now we're, we're jumping back into an Old Testament narrative. We're back in the middle of a story, which I love. I love preaching story. I, I know just about everybody loves a good story, and this is a good story. It's an ancient one. It's unbelievable in so many ways, uh, and yet we believe it's true. And just to, just to set, just to get us back into the story, remember, God's people are in Egypt, oppressed as slaves, right? Their, their children are murdered um, in cold blood, and their hardships are too many to count as a people, as a nation. Uh, but God hears. He remembers. Now, that, was the first, that was the first sermon two weeks ago. We know that God hears, that he knows uh, of the plight of his people. And, this, and enter this character named Moses, um, he's, a, he's a Hebrew, he's an Israelite, uh, but he was raised in the royal family, in the, in the palace of Pharaoh, if you will. And remember back two weeks, he's found in the reeds. I don't know if you guys have noticed, we've got these cool boxes that uh, correspond with, with each Sunday. So he's, he's found in the, in the reeds uh, by Pharaoh's daughter and raised in the royal family. And it, and it seems at this point that God's God's people have finally recovered that position of power, right? They had, they had Joseph, but he died. He's forgotten. They're oppressed, and now finally they've got someone back in a position of power. God, this is God's plan. It must be, right? But then Moses takes matters into his own hands, <laughs> and, he, and he kills a guy. He murders an Egyptian, and he, and he has to flee. He goes to Midian, and he spends 40 years in the wilderness in obscurity, 
waiting. And remember, is this the plan, God, right? This is the plan. This guy, he's our leader. And then God speaks to him from a burning bush, a fire, right? He, talk about an interesting turn in a really unbelievable story. We have a, a, a talking bush that's on fire, uh, and, he, and he calls Moses, who is, to this point, a massive failure. He calls him to play a part in delivering his people to come back to Egypt. And he sets him apart for his purposes. And that's the, right, that's the idea of holiness. To be, to be made holy is to be set apart, to be used by God. And reluctantly, reluctantly, Moses agrees, right? It takes all these signs and a lot of convincing, but Moses agrees, not because he's a hero. Uh, he's made, he makes it pretty clear. He doesn't see himself as a hero, but, but because he's met, he's met Yahweh, the great I am, the, the one, the everlasting one. He's met the real hero. He, Yahweh, is coming to deliver his people. Well, uh, this morning it's about to get even crazier than a talking, uh, burning bush, right? And today is about our third box, uh, which is blood. <clears throat> and I, if any of you are like me, you're real excited about that. Um, uh, there's something you may not know about me. I, I, I have some real problems with blood. Like, it's a very real struggle. Um, I don't know if anyone's like that, uh, but, but the sight of it makes me feel really weird things. I don't like, especially when it's my own blood. I mean, just... I can't, I can't handle it. And, and uh, you know, Beth, she loves it. And, or, or that's really morbid. Sounds weird. She is fascinated by, like, the anatomy. But her favorite thing in college was her cadaver labs. You know, she loves kind of crime shows and that sort of thing. But I, I can't stand it. Uh, I can't handle it. And, you know, in the church, we talk, we talk about blood a lot. Um, I'm sure some of you saw this up here and were like, yeah, big deal. We just sang about the blood, right? We have juice up here that represents blood, which is, if you're newer to Christianity, it's a little bit strange, right? I mean, you wonder what's up with the blood. But we realize it's pretty central to our faith, right? And, and bloodshed is, is a necessary part of the, the best news of this book. I mean, it's, it's, it's the best part of the story. And the story this morning that we'll see uh, has to do with blood, and it's that God will do anything to make himself known, and it may get a little bit bloody. God will do anything to make himself known, and it may get a little bit bloody. In fact, it must. It must have to do with blood, but we'll get to that in a little bit. But God will be known one way or another. Every culture, every lifestyle, every people group, everyone in this room, at one point or another, will know God. And God will do anything to make himself known to us. So with that starting point, let's jump back into the story uh, where we left off last week. So we've got this leader named Moses uh, with his brother Aaron at his side. Um, these two are going to, to lead God's people Israel out of Egypt. But there's just one problem. There's, uh, there's this guy named Pharaoh, and he is the most powerful leader in the known universe. He is the powerful king of Egypt, and he stands in their way. So Mo Moses and Aaron come uh, before him armed, uh, really, with this famous plea. It's, that's all I have. Let my people go, right? That's the, uh, from the Ten Commandments. I don't know. Anybody seen that? No, Charles? No, that was way more funnier in my head. 
but that's okay. Uh, anyway, they, they come before him with this plea, let my people go, and Pharaoh doesn't flinch, right? And in fact, I imagine he doesn't even look up, uh, and he just, you know, he says, wait, who? Who's this Yahweh? Uh, never heard of him. Don't know who he is. And he scoffs at the request of Moses and Aaron. In fact, he makes life harder for the, the Israelite people by, by making them go gather their own straw to make bricks. Right? This is in chapter 5. Uh, we're, I'm setting the stage a little bit. We're actually preaching through 6 through 12. I forgot to mention that. Uh, we're going, we're covering, covering a lot of ground this morning, so try to keep up. But this is in chapter 5. Uh, Moses and Aaron come before him, and he scoffs at their quest and makes life harder for the Israelites to the point where they're, they're starting to grumble. Is this the plan? Again, right? This is, not, this is not getting any better. You see, the scene, I love this scene, this first scene that sets the stage for our story this morning. This is really a battle between the gods. It's a battle for power, of authority. It's a battle between kings, right? Pharaoh, the almighty king of Egypt, the most powerful man in the known universe, with his gods versus Yahweh. This unknown, unknown God of a slave nation in Egypt. As we'll see, he's the God of much, much more. This God will make himself known. Now this false start with Pharaoh, uh, as they come before him, it, it's no surprise to God, but Moses needs a little pep talk, a little reassurance. So God reiterates the plan uh, with a promise. Look at, verse, look at chapter 6, verse 7. So it's just read beautifully, this whole section, uh, but I'm going to hone in on verse 7. It says, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. He says, I am the Lord, I'm Yahweh, your God, and my plan will not fail. I will deliver my people, and they will know me. And this is, this is a promise that Moses can bank on, that he can stand on. But it's not just Israel who will know the name Yahweh, right? Egypt will know through his actions, through what comes in the story. Egypt will know this God too. Look at chapter 7, verse 5. It says, The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. See, God knows Pharaoh won't listen to him. Uh, in fact, he's in complete control of the situation, as we'll see along the way. Uh, so Moses and Aaron, they, come, they, they head back. You know, God reiterates the plan to Moses, and they come back before Pharaoh, this time armed with a sign from God. Now, remember the signs from last week? Right? These, the, there was the snake and the leprosy. Uh, these, those signs were for God's people. Those were meant to be performed so that Israel would know who, who these whose name these messengers bear. Well, this time, it's for Pharaoh, right? Pharaoh has a chance to meet this God. So Aaron comes before him, and he throws his staff on the ground, and it turns into a snake, right? So this is not much different than last week, but this time, the Pharaoh's ma magicians, they actually do the same thing. So they all throw their, their staffs uh, on the ground, and, they, and there are a bunch of snakes, which... Uh, you know, some of, I'm weirded out by blood. Some of you, this is like your worst nightmare. There are snakes everywhere. Uh, and, and uh, you know, is this just some elaborate party trick? Um, 
it feels like it, but it's not. Uh, I don't think it is. Uh, see, the snake in ancient Egypt was actually a symbol of kingly power. It was, a, it was often on the, on the crown right here, and it was, it was meant to denote uh, kingship or authority. It was also uh, a depiction or a pagan, one of the pagan gods of evil and chaos. So imagine now you have all these snakes slithering around on the ground, and it's really this picture of the battle of the gods, the battle of the kings. And what happens next is crazy. I mean, I, I'm not sure if Moses or Aaron even knew this was going to happen. I'm sure they were uh, just amazed. But the one snake from the staff from Aaron's hand devours all of the other snakes, which I, it's easy to read right past that and not think, wow, that's, that had to be crazy to witness. But the, the message, if you're willing to hear it, is loud and clear in this scene. This God is king. The God of this staff. He has ultimate authority. And it's clear in this first scene, this God rules. He is king. In fact, it's explicit later in the story that he is going up against all these gods of Egypt. Chapter 12, verse 12, it says, All the gods of Egypt, I will, against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. And it could have ended, this all could have ended right there, right in that palace court. But Pharaoh is unimpressed, and his heart grows hard, just as God said it would. His heart is hardened. So judgment is going to rain down on Egypt in the form of plagues. It's the ten, these ten plagues uh, that begin really at the heart of this civilization with the Nile River, uh, the this Nile, the Nile River is turned to blood, which is super gross. But uh, it, this first plague, God messes with their water, their life source, this, the source of vitality for this entire civilization. Uh, the, the, the text says there's blood all over the place, uh, which is my worst, my worst nightmare. Uh, but, but you can imagine, just imagine with me uh, that put yourself in the sandals of an old, this old Hebrew, an old Hebrew woman, oppressed for decades, that every time she looked out over that river, she would remember. She remembered her brothers thrown into the water as babies, just innocent babies, bloodshed in oppression. She remembers her sons murdered there. She remembers the unspeakable grief that filled her heart in those moments. And every day, day in and day out, she looks over that river and she remembers the pain and the grief of the hardship that her nation, her people have suffered. But then one day she looks out and she sees this blood, this water turned to blood, the Nile. She's heard rumors of a deliverer, of judgment, and she realizes as as her eyes feel, fill with tears, she realizes, my, my God remembers. He sees. He has not forgotten. Right, the very water that Pharaoh tried to use to extinguish this people, to wipe them off the face of the earth, God is using to deliver them. And it could have ended there. Right? It could have ended after the, plague, the first plague. But Pharaoh is unimpressed and his heart is hardened just as God said it would be. 
So then the next flag, there are frogs. Uh, frogs everywhere. Uh, in your bed, in your food, in your drawers, frogs. Uh, which is, I don't know, you know, some of you, I don't know which is worse, blood or frogs everywhere. It sounds disgusting. And some of the kids, some of you kids, uh, like to play with frogs, right? That sounds uh, fun, like bouncy little frogs everywhere. But, you know, do you want frogs in your mac and cheese? No, I don't think so. Uh, that sounds disgusting, especially after they die, which is, the text says they would die and there were heaps of dead frogs everywhere. Yeah, yeah, just let that sink in for a second. But this is more than uh, just like a, a public health issue. Um, frogs were the depiction of Egypt's fertility gods. And so again, God is taking on their gods and saying, I reign supreme. Because Pharaoh actually starts to waver on this one, right? He asks, he asks Moses to go plead for relief, and Moses does. He intercedes, and as soon as there's relief, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He grows hard once again. So next there are gnats. The next plague, uh, gnats everywhere, clouds of gnats. Uh, I don't know if you've ever walked through uh, a cloud of gnats with your mouth open. That's disgusting. Um, everywhere. And, and even the magicians and sorcerers are saying at this point, look, we've, they replicated these first two plagues, but they're saying, look, dude, we're out. Like, it's over. This is the finger of God, they say. They say, this, this is beyond us. We are outmatched, right? And count, counterfeit power like that, like they had, while real power is not lasting power. Right? God, just like in the snakes with the magicians, he swallows up the powers of this world. He reigns supreme. And it could have ended there, but Pharaoh's heart grows harder. And there were flies, and there was the death of livestock, and then boils, and hail, like you wouldn't believe, that destroyed everything. And then locusts that came in, and anything that wasn't destroyed, the locusts ate up. Right? These four through eight, the plagues four through eight, really destroyed every living thing that was left. It was the undoing of creation in these plagues. And then, the ninth plague, there was darkness. Like, can't see your hand in front of your face, darkness, in the middle of the day. And that was a blatant attack on the sun god, Ra. Uh, and, it, and it must have felt like the apocalypse, like this is it, it's over, this is the end. And I love how the Jesus Storybook Bible puts it, which um, if you, parents, if you don't have the Jesus Storybook Bible, actually adults, if you don't have the Jesus Storybook Bible, you should get it. If you want a copy, talk to me. I'll get it for you. It's amazing. Uh, but Sally Lloyd-Jones, uh, in this book, she, I love how she says this. She really captures what's going on. It says, it seemed that the whole world, creation and everything, was coming undone, falling back into darkness and emptiness and nothingness. See, creation itself is unraveling in the plagues. And you, and you see it throughout. I mean, each plague is an element of creation, right? Water turned to blood. Dust turned into gnats. The animals are under God's control. Even the stars uh, are under God's command. Darkness was the first chaos in the creation account to be subdued, right? But here, it's, being, it's all being undone, order, the order of creation. And it's bringing chaos to the Egyptian people. That's the picture. We're meant to see 
the undoing of this God of order and creation, he's undoing it for their judgment. See, God's not, he's not just the ruler over a tiny slave nation in Egypt. He is Lord over every square inch of the universe. And there's, there's nothing outside of his control. And there's nothing that misses his attention, right? Nothing, not ruthless oppression or terrible suffering. And there's not a detail of your life and mine that, is, that misses his attention either. Each plague could have been the last. And there were even a few spots where it looked like Pharaoh was going to repent. He says at one point, this time, this time I have sinned, <laughs> which is just so arrogant. It's not even funny. But this time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. But after every plague, his heart grows harder. And you'll notice, I mean, if you've read the story, you'll notice God is said to have an active role in that hardening of his heart which I cannot, I will not be able to explain from here this morning. I can't understand it, but I do know that God, God is in complete control. He is sovereign, and he will do anything to make himself known. Now, maybe you're beginning to feel a bit uncomfortable um, at this point, like I have this week. Reading through this story, you think to yourself, how could God judge all these people? Like, this is terrible. I mean, when you really read and sit in this story, it's awful. There's a lot of death. Uh, how could God do this, right? Doesn't seem like a very loving God to me. Um, but imagine you're a Hebrew slave. Again, put, put yourself back in the sandals of that Hebrew woman. How could God not judge these people, right? I mean, evil and justice and injustice have to be dealt with. There's been murder and and oppression and rape for generations. There must be judgment for evil. And if you're an Israelite, the question isn't, uh, how could you? How could you, God, do this? But why haven't you? Why haven't you done this? But God remembers. Uh, He remembers and he will be known. He will stop at nothing And here's the point. Here's the first point this morning. And to to the hardened, God makes himself known through judgment. To the hardened, to those who are hard of heart, God will be known, but he will be known through judgment. And we can question God's judgment all day long, but in the end, we all want evil to be dealt with. We all want injustice to be made right. Instead, we should ask ourselves the question, how hard is my heart? How hard is my heart this morning? Is my heart getting harder toward God? Uh, is, is this how I want God to make himself known to me through judgment? Now, sure, we're, we're no Pharaoh, uh, but, but where are the places in my life and in yours where we turn our backs on God? Where do you and I hard in our hearts because we're all, we're all capable of this, of a callous, cold heart toward God. Um, trust me, I, I know these places in my life. Um, these places where I have to daily or hourly repent to uh, turn away from my sinful ways and turn toward a God who offers deliverance, 
who wants to deliver me from sin and, and into life with him. And my hunch is you know the places in your life where this could be true, where your heart could grow hard and callous toward God. That sin that just, that just makes you want to turn away from God. So even now, as we relive, as, we, as we're in the middle of an ancient story uh, of God delivering his people and making himself known, listen to his voice and hear him. Heed the warning that we find in this story and listen to God. Pray for a soft heart that hears God's voice and obeys. Let's get back, uh, get back to our story. We're in the midst of really complete chaos and ruin and rubble in this, in this nation. And Israel continues to wait for their promised deliverance. And so now God prepares his people for, for one final plague, for uh, the 10th plague. And it's ugly. It's far worse than frogs or gnats or even complete darkness. Um, look, at, look at 11, chapter 11, verses 4 through 6. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. So every firstborn in the land will die in this final plague. From Pharaoh in his palace to the slave girl in the field, the judgment is, is sweeping and excruciating. No one will escape, except the Hebrews except God's people. In the midst of judgment, God has a plan for his people. In mercy, he makes, he makes a way out for them. And it's, it's quite the plan. Uh, here's, here's what he tells Israel to do. He says, go get a lamb, each family, go get a lamb, an innocent, spotless, uh, one-year-old male lamb, and slaughter it at twilight. And then take some of the blood and smear it on the doorposts. And don't leave your house until morning. And then, t- and then take the rest of that lamb and make a feast, um, with the main course being the lamb. And, and eat it. When you eat it, make sure you have your bags packed and your shoes on because you're on your way out. And he says, when I come to judge, if I see the blood on the doorposts, um, which is an evidence of your faith in me, that, you, that you've listened to my voice, uh, I'll pass over you. Death will pass over your house. And you, you will live because the lamb died. <clears throat> you will be delivered. And that's what happened. In fact, look at uh, 12, 29 through 32. I can't, I can't tell the story any better than this, so I'll just read it. It says, At midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive, who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. 
And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said and be gone. And bless me also. This is the Passover event. As one nation wails and cries in suffering, uh, the other is set free. Pharaoh finally begs them to leave, to be gone. There's judgment and mercy on the same night. Now, I don't know about you, but this, this whole scene uh, is really unsettling for me. As I, re- as I read through, I mean, the whole story is unsettling at one level, but, but especially the Passover. And sure, for obvious reasons, it's unsettling. There's a lot of death. There's a lot of blood shed. Um, in this story, but that's not what I mean. It, it, cuts, it cuts me in a way that, uh, in a strange way, and it's not the judgment part. I get that. I get that evil and injustice and oppression need to be dealt with. No, I, I think it's the proximity of mercy and judgment together on the same night. It unsettles me. There's something about it that runs against the grain. And maybe it's because I know, I've read the story, I know what these Israelites are like, right? Uh, they, they complain, they disobey, they turn away from God, right? They don't deserve, they don't deserve this mercy. Uh, but I don't think that's it. I think it's because I want to, in some way, I want to read myself into the story. Um, and I don't know where I fit. I'm not sure which nation I belong to. Uh, of course, I want to say I'm a poor Hebrew, uh, that, that awaiting deliverance. Uh, we, we always want to write ourselves into a story as the good guy on the good team, right? I mean, it's, uh, we always want to side with the hero. But where do we fit into this story? And really into the, the broader story of Scripture, because this story is a microcosm of what the Bible is saying. But where do we fit? Um, I know I don't deserve mercy. And in many ways, that's the nature of mercy, right? Nobody deserves it. That's why it's, that's why it's called mercy. So none of us deserve mercy. I mean, if you, if you take the Bible seriously from Genesis to Revelation, we know back in Genesis 3, we don't deserve mercy. We all deserve judgment. Um, we're all much more like the Egyptians than we care to admit. But God will do anything to make himself known. And to the desperate, God makes himself known through mercy. No one deserves this mercy, but this is our God. This is is our God. He longs to show us mercy. He is merciful and just at the same time. And And that's why there must be blood why there must be blood. God couldn't extend mercy and uphold justice any other way. There had to be blood. The, the price is that high. But lamb's blood, right? I mean, that doesn't seem, that doesn't seem uh, like the answer. It's a bizarre story, really. Blood smeared 
on doorposts, but it wasn't merely lamb's blood on the door. Not really. Uh, I mean, what good could that do? Right? The debt is too great. It was far more amazing than that. Right? The, the blood of the spotless lamb was actually a promise that God himself would deal with sin, that he would die where death is deserved. He actually writes himself into the story, into history. And Jesus, Jesus is the spotless lamb that delivers desperate sinners from the bondage of their sin and into new life with him. And, and those who recognize this need, their, their desperate need for a savior can be delivered from sin and death. Jesus shed his blood to deliver us. And justice and mercy at the cross come together. It's the only place where they can come together. And so I've been asking myself this question, uh, how desperate am I? Am I I desperate? Do I see myself as desperate for this? I mean, this is an act of desperation, the smearing blood on a doorpost. Um, And coming to Jesus is no less desperate. So how desperate are you? We ask the question, how hard is your heart? How desperate are you this morning? Let me just offer a simple next step from this morning. Uh, God will, if God will do anything to be known, to be made known, get to know this God, this God of mercy and justice. Uh, whether you're a Christian or not, what, what are you doing to get to know this God? And ultimately, the only way to get to know him is, is through his son, right? This is the fullness of God with skin on. I love, I love that picture, whose blood was smeared not just on a doorpost, but on a a criminal's cross. And I want to close with this. One scholar has written uh, that I just love. It says, Jesus can heal the nations because he's not only the judge, he has himself borne the judgment. On the cross, Jesus' own body was shattered like a china doll as he bore the fracturing power of sin. And with outstretched arms on the cross, Jesus receives the nation's judgment and simultaneously receives the nation's in mercy. Jesus grabs hold of sin's destructive power that has divided humanity and he carries it with him into the grave where he buries it. I love that. And this is our God. This is our gospel, the good news of the Bible. God himself became a spotless lamb. He spilled his blood to make a way out of judgment, and then he rose again to give us a way into mercy. Uh, this, is, this is really good news, friends. So let's, let's continue uh, to worship this God this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have made a way out of judgment for us, that you bore the judgment yourself, that you shed blood on the cross so that we could receive mercy and grace, that we could approach your throne as the one who sits in authority over all the universe. We can approach, you are approachable in your son. Thank you that we can come before you and find life and deliverance. I pray that we would do that this morning, that our hearts would not be hardened to your voice, but that we would have soft, desperate hearts that yearn to know you because you want to make yourself known. Yeah, God, I pray that we would worship 
you fully this morning in spirit and in truth. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.